for this uh, opportunity to be here to to study God's word. We are rounding the corner, uh, ending this particular uh, uh, lesson series, the Prodigal uh, Family Reunion, and I think we have two more lessons to go, and then I think we are going into a, a different uh, a different series. But as for right now, here we go again, continuing tonight with the Father and uh, praying that something can be said to give us each strength and um, a blessing from God to become better and stronger than we have been in the past. Let's go to God in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy divine name and thank you for your word that you've given to us that explains matters of life and digs deep into our hearts. You told parables that help us, Lord God, to learn more things about ourselves and even about humanity. We pray that you will bless us to grow stronger uh, in our faith and that we will never walk away from our dear Lord, but stay faithful uh, as Jesus showed us how to be faithful and how to remain faithful and true to you. Thank you for the example that uh, was been, has been set for us and thank you for your patience, for your mercy and your care and your love. And thank you for that amazing sacrifice and for your wonderful Holy Spirit whom you sent to seal us to the day of redemption. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray to be thy will. Amen. Okay, so back to Luke uh, 15. We want to now grab a different thought and go into a different direction with the Father. And that is, uh, remember that in 15 verse 11, uh, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And this is important because I want us to think about for just a moment. We're going to go to Second Corinthians chapter 8. The picture that God is giving us is the Father who represents God, who represents love. The Father did something in, for, in Luke 15, verse 11 and 12. He didn't give a portion of his estate. He gave it all. Right, and that's that's important. And we talked about that just a moment uh, last week, and I want to talk about it just for a moment tonight. I want you to think about that for just just a second. What Jesus did for us in Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse nine, the Bible says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." What does it mean to become poor? I mean, not in the sense of as Jesus uh, demonstrated for us having all, but if if we lost all that we had, but losing it means we gave it up willingly. How comfortable would you feel about life? In other words, if you gave up your vehicles, all the conveniences that we have, and the comforts that we have, would you have continually... The attitude today um, that you had maybe yesterday, having now to walk to work or ride a bicycle to work, um, having very few clothing, uh, you know, items to to wear, uh, just taking away all of our modern conveniences in life. How how would your attitude change? Would your attitude be the same, or would it would it for us would it would we become very irritated and irritable and 
and have a difficult time. I want you to know Jesus came and he became poor so that we could become rich. Rich in the blessings, the spiritual blessings of, of life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, so the father, the father gave all. So imagine now, he gave his, uh, you know, a third of it, the estate to the younger son and just watched his son take it away and do whatever he wished. And the father remained consistently the same in the text. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So please recognize at this moment what God gave. Okay? Recognize what God gave. The Father in the text um, gave all. He gave his older son his share of the estate. He gave the younger son his share of the estate. And that was it. And yet the Father's attitude remained the same. When we look at the text, we also realize there's an attitude that, that is displayed. A new type of attitude. In other words, the father, who um, maybe he was jovial, I'm not really sure about that part, but his, he had to learn something that he didn't know in the past. And that is, he had to learn how to cope, and he had to learn how to find hope. And I'm going to talk about hope in just a moment. Uh, in, the, in the passage, in the parable, the father had to learn what, what many have had to learn in the unfortunate time of a loss, right? This loss is not in, in death, but this loss is in the possibility of death. It is in a spiritual relationship, in a spiritual loss. And the father had to learn what it means or how to learn how to cope with the new norm. You may have heard that idea before that, you know, there are things that were one way, but now they're, they're different. And so the father now has to wake up and learn how to cope uh, in his current situation. He had to remind himself that you cannot change people's hearts. They can only change their own. And you know what fathers do, and mothers, when I say fathers, please understand I'm talking about mom and dad right now from this point for just a bit. Um, as I have been throughout the text, you think about the father, spiritual people. Uh, the father had to learn that it's not always your fault when our children make bad decisions. Maybe it's never the father's fault when children make bad decisions. But there are going to be times when parent, children are going to make decisions that are not the, either parent's fault, but the child makes uh, tremendous mistakes. And the father, uh, in this text, has to learn how to cope with those hurt feelings. So his son uh, acted in the text selfishly. Um, he hurt his parents. He abandoned what he knew to be true. You know, we've seen that, right? His parents, he knew the right thing to do. He knew God, but he abandoned what he knew to be true. He abandoned the relationship that he had with his father at home, and he left to go off and live in any way that he so chose. And this son was lost. And the father had to cope with the idea that now my son, who was lost, 
is spiritually lost. In the text, he's spiritually lost. When he walks away, it's him literally dying before the Father. Okay? He's spiritually gone. Remember, the Father explained that later. He says, his son of mine was lost. So it isn't just the fact that he walked away. It's the fact that he is literally walking away in the text, walking from, away from God. And so now the Father had to accept the things that he could not change. And how painful that is to, to know that you can do all of the right things and, and still your, your child whom you love uh, do all of the wrong things for whatever reason. And that's kind of the relationship between humans and God. That God is doing and has done everything right, right? And yet so many children of God still choose and have chosen to walk away, losing our souls for that time being, some even dying lost, walking away from God. That's a terrible thought. This is the, the heart-wrenching part of, uh, of the text, as, as if the rest of it isn't as well. But he also, at the same time, had to find the ability in the midst of all of this turmoil to find hope, to keep hope alive in his heart, in his mind, to, to, um, to rejuvenate every day himself in the relationship with what he has left. And I can hear, and you probably can too, the father uh, crying through the night in his prayer, begging the father, the heavenly father, please. When, when there's no one else that you can depend on, which we should realize that that's the reality of our everyday life. There's, there's no one else to depend on, uh, regardless of anything in our lives. And so we should be always praying to our father, begging for his help and for the hope that we can have that lies in Jesus Christ. But this father is, is begging the heavenly father to keep his son safe. But I believe in the text, the father knows the odds of, of what's going to happen to his, his son. I'm not speaking of life and death physically, but I'm talking about spiritually. It kind of reminds me when I go back to, and we're going to go there now, Second Samuel chapter 18, when Absalom went to war against his father to take away his father's throne. Um, he had no good intention within his heart other than to remove his father from his throne and through his uh, jealousy and, and wickedness of heart, through the lifestyle in which he lived, uh, he accomplished that for just a moment. And I can only imagine David, it's a really good text to look at, I can only imagine David suffering during this war because he knows Joab and he knows his army and he knows the mighty men and he knows the odds of Absalom winning and taking over his kingdom, fighting against these mighty men and God's chosen. Most likely, he's not going to win. And David's heart, David's heart ached within him because of his son Absalom. But interestingly enough with David is that David knows that mostly the reason why his son Absalom is doing some of the things that he's doing is because God has opened up the door of opportunity, uh, no longer protecting David because of the sins that David caused or David committed. The sin of Uriah, uh, the Hittite with Bathsheba, and other sins that David has committed, the senses, etc. And so God 
allows his protection to be removed just a bit from David. And all of this wickedness happens in his life. And his son happens to be one of those people who steps in to bring a persecution against his very own father. Verse 31 of first Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 18. And behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young man, Absalom. And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went into, up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And that's a father's heart being ripped out. Because you know probably was inevitable. And there's nothing you can do. But David knows that Absalom's situation has an awful lot to do with him. And there there are some homes where the father is the reason, uh, or part of the reason, should I say, that the son has gone awry. And how how sad that is. And we, you know, you only pray that an opportunity will present itself to where you can find a way to, through God's help, to bring those children, that child, back to the Lord. In chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it and said, That day the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as a people who are humiliated steal away or steal away uh, when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so you can't help but to feel that heart-wrenching feeling of the, the loss of a son spiritually because of the sins of the father's actions. You know, oftentimes we talk about, um, you know, as, as fathers, we talk about, well, the mistakes we made in um, in life and how we weren't very faithful to the Lord as a result children aren't faithful and now we're faithful and they're not and oh how we wish we could turn their lives around and and there's no real I mean there's no real uh, you know uh, answer um, you know to this mystery or to this puzzle it it is what it is and but the, the pain is the heart the point is the heart felt pain and emotion of a son being lost is something that is devastating and tragic in the heart of Christian fathers and mothers and so I encourage at, at this moment, any young folks that are listening to this tonight, think about not just yourself in life. Think about the pain, not only of your physical, biological father and mother, but even your spiritual mothers and fathers in the church who've loved you and cared for you and watched you grow. The church itself that loves you and has watched you grow. And, and even though, like David, maybe everything hasn't been done exactly right, um, think about not just yourself, but think about God, think about your internal soul and how important it is for you to come back to the Lord. This is a great tragic story in that it helps us to recognize uh, the depth of the pain uh, 
uh, in Luke 15, the depth of the pain of a father's loss of a son when he dies spiritually. Maybe he died physically and maybe Absalom in the end God will show grace, but that's neither here nor there. But the point is, is what a terrible, terrible loss. And then on the other hand, though, there are other fathers who've done everything that we can see right. Um, and, and the child still goes astray. And how does a father uh, who is raising this child has done the very best that he can and then spiritually, and then this child leaves the Lord, and you wonder why or how can that child leave the Lord? And fathers, mothers realize that it's, it, you know, most of the time, it has nothing to do with the parent. It's a decision that the child makes when the child grows older. And we have to step back, if it's possible, and it is possible, to step back and just pray and accept the things that we cannot control. We cannot force God on anyone. They have to make the choice for themselves. I want to look at Second Chronicles chapter 33. And I want to take a look at a, another account that is tragic, but at the same time, it's got, it has a beautiful side uh, to it as well. Uh, Manasseh. So King Hezekiah was a very good king. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that he followed God. He did what he was supposed to do. Um, God gave him 15 extra years to live. Uh, I would assume, I'm only speculating, that Hezekiah was a good father and a good spiritual leader to his family, just as he was to Israel. I'm going to say, yes, that he was. However, there was a boy that was born to him named Manasseh. And I want to begin in verse 1 and read for just a moment to show you how the apple has fallen. Someone said that, right? So far from the tree. Look at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations, whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He also erected altars for the bells and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his two, his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in his house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. If only they will observe to do all that I've commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So imagine that. Not even God at this moment could change the heart of Manasseh. But God is patient and merciful. And as parents, we have to learn to be like the Father in the text and be like God, to be patient and merciful and 
we were going to ask the question that the father, obviously Hezekiah has passed on, but the families would have wondered, will Manasseh ever change? Will Manasseh ever turn his life around and come to the Lord? He knows God. He, I mean, Hezekiah, his father, was a, a good king, although he was young when he became king. He learned enough. He had a good foundation and a good start uh, in the kingdom and doing the will of God. But he chose to go the opposite. And here's what's tough. Here's what's tough. When the family has to step back and allow God to inflict a punishment upon a young boy, a little older man at this time, to step back and allow God to do God's work. And God's work is always to such, to where God is seeking to save the lost. That's what the product was about. It's about the Father, uh, the Heavenly Father, who is always searching and seeking his people out. And God has um, more of those pig pens out there, you know, for people that need a pig pen to try to wake them up, to shake them just a bit. He, he has more fish like Jonah to swallow them up, to bring people back to their senses. And we have to find a way to step back and allow God to be God and be just and, and fair and merciful and compassionate and do his bidding to save souls. Would Manasseh ever change? And the answer, obviously, in the text, you read it in verse 11. Yeah, he did. But he first had to go through his own pig pen. He first had to suffer a bit. Verse 11, if you will, in this text. There's always hope. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, one might say, if we were the older brother, we might say, oh, yeah, now you come back to God when you're in distress, right? Now you're suffering, you come back to God. Well, because he's in the pig pen. And it's through his suffering that he's learned to humble himself and turn his life around to God. But he had to be afflicted by God in such a way as God is merciful and kind to turn his life around. Back in verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard the, his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the, the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the offal with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars, which he built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw himself Outside the city. He threw them, excuse me. He threw them outside. This didn't sound right. He threw them outside of the city. And he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Notice what he did. He commanded or ordered Israel. He ordered them to serve God. You will serve God. And so there's always hope 
And that's really important that we recognize that there's always hope. In the account in Luke 15, there is an irony to this account. When you read it, it, it actually um, it reads one way when you just begin to read it. But as you begin to study it, there's a little twist uh, to the account. In verse 1 and verse 2 is where the twist is that opens up the, the, uh, you know, the end of the story, okay, in the parable. It says, now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And what's happening is the Pharisees and the scribes, in reality, are speaking about themselves and they don't even know it. That Jesus, like the Father, was willing to sit and eat with them too. Amazing, right? Like you read the account. The prodigal in the account, he's forgiven. His sins are washed away. He's good. He's in a great shape. He's in great shape. He's in a relationship with his father. All is well. The sinner is not the prodigal. The sinner is the older brother. And in this account, while the Pharisees looked out and grumbled at Jesus saying, why would Jesus sit with these sinners? These people who were sitting at the feet of Jesus who wanted to be saved, who wanted to know more about God. These are the people who have repentance in their heart. Of course, it's the Old Testament, so baptism is not required. And these are the folks that have come back to Jesus. And it's the Pharisees and the scribes who are actually the sinners in the text. There's a twist. There's irony in the account. And so someone said uh, when you point your finger at other people, Watch out because three fingers are pointing back at you. You know, it's easy to point the finger at everybody else and say, look at what they're doing. But Jesus wants us to remember, yes, maybe they are. But what are you doing? And so that's so critical in in our relationship. So how long has it been? We don't know. Maybe it maybe it's been maybe it's been years in this in this parable. Uh, Luke fifteen in verse in verse twenty, but at some time or another, he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You think it's a coincidence that he's a long way off and the father saw him? Or do you think, thinking about a father losing a son to, um, you know, frivolous living or, excuse me, um, living a life of, of, of wickedness, and going down that road. Do you think the father was looking down that road? Do you think every time the father came to that road, he said a prayer, Dear Lord, please one day, please bring my son back to me. He saw his son at a, at a distance, a far distance away, and I'll bet that the father spent many hours throughout this time period gazing down that road hoping that one day he's going to look up and his son is going to come down that road, having humbled himself, and come back home to be with his father. And I can imagine that when that father looked a long way down that road, that his eyes were filled with tears and that he was so excited that when you read the text, he doesn't stay there and look. The Bible says he runs. He runs to embrace his son. And isn't that how the account 
started or began? It began in that same way, that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than, than over the 99 who need no repentance. There's this joy. There's this joy over one person who repents. Brethren, I tell you, if there's one thing that we could recognize from this account, it is that repentance is a way that we can bring great joy to the heart of the Father. What an exciting thing. What a twist, right? Back to the twist of the account. What a twist. Instead of repentance being this thing that we just, I mean, I get it. We feel sorry about our sin. We're ashamed. We should have never done it. But that doesn't matter because we did do it. But now to be willing to just fess up, man up, one might say. Think about nothing else but your relationship with God and the fact that God is standing with his arms open waiting for one sinner to come home. And if there's something in your life that you've done that's caused you to walk away from God, instead of being ashamed, recognize that you can finally put a smile and rejoicing in the heart of God a smile on his face through your repentance, one person at a time. What a joy. It, for some, somehow, Satan has, again, he's turned this, and he's caused us to believe, no, no, don't repent. Don't, don't let anyone know what you've done. Don't, um, you know, well, rather, pretend like you're perfect. And I tell you, one of the hardest things to do for a preacher, you can ask Jeremiah, is to preach to perfect people. You know, you want to preach to humans. And as humans, sometimes we're the older son, and sometimes we're the younger son. We want to be the father, and sometimes we're the father. But in life, it's that roller coaster that it just happens that in life we mess up because we are human. And you know what's beautiful? I'll tell you what's beautiful about, um, I guess there's nothing beautiful about messing up, but in reality, what's beautiful about it is, at one time when I lived my life, uh, when I was outside of Christ, I didn't recognize when I messed up. But in Christ, when you recognize that you've missed the mark, what a blessing to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear regarding yourself, to recognize, hey, you've sinned. And then to be able to come back to God whom you know from this account, will welcome you back with open arms regardless of what it is you've done. Isn't it beautiful? That's the the storyline of this account, the response of God. There's a proper response and there's an improper response. The older brother obviously had the improper or the incorrect response. The younger brother had the correct response. Come back to God. God will take you back. Thank you, God. Galatians 5, if you will. It's a picture in Galatians 5 of, of what Jesus asks us to do when he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. That's what God has for us. That's the love and the joy and the peace and the gentleness. That's what God has for us. And God wants his children always to come home. Okay, I need to, I want to quickly think about this just just for a second. 
he looks down the road and he sees his son at a distance. And the closer that his son gets to him, he realizes he's lived a rough life. You know, let's just imagine he's just come out of the pig pen. I don't know, obviously, what his clothes like, but let's just take it from the pig pen story. And he recognizes some things about him. Number one, he's, he's filthy. <laughs> right? Just came out of the pig pen. Uh, he stinks, too. <laughs> he smells because he's been in the pig's pen. He's had a rough, rough, rough life. And can you imagine how many times... Um, the boy, I'm gonna, I want to come, I'm going to hang this out here because I want to make sure I get back to this before our time is up. Um, the boy rehearsed his story. He rehearsed his repentance in his heart on his way home, right? You, you'll, we'll, we'll get to that in, in just a second. But he, he's thin too. You know, mama looks at him and says, that boy hasn't eaten in a while. Right? He's he lost a lot of weight. And, and the father, the father sees his son. And what does he want to do? He wants to clothe him, put some clothes on him, get him back into the proper status, feed him, and love him. And that's what God will do for us, right? When we repent, that's what it is. We're thin spiritually because we haven't been eating spiritual food. So we're thin. And then we're filthy. And we stink because we've been out in the world with Satan. But God brings us back, and he, he wants to reclothe us and to fill us and to feed us and take care of us. You see, it's, it's a beautiful account of our relationship with our Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, the verse 10. The Bible says there, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what has, uh, he has done, whether good or bad. Notice what, ha- what has not happened. This person has not change status. In other words, uh, when you become a Christian, you know, you're once a Christian, always a Christian. Let me make sure I say this. Not once saved, always saved. That's that's not even close to what we're talking about. You will always be judged forever as a Christian. So once you come to Christ, you forever will be a Christian and will be judged as a Christian. Whether we're filthy because we've we've lived unruly lives and uh, we're judged and, and we don't make it to heaven, or whether we are uh, living the way God wants us to, and, and either way, by His grace or mercy, He enters, allows us to enter into the, the joys of heaven. But once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You don't have to get baptized. In other words, you just come to the Lord, right? Okay. First Peter 4, verse 16. Repent. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will, become, uh, of the out, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so the judgment begins with us. And so here comes, oh boy, are you ready for judgment day? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. I'm using this to set us up for this next thought. Verse 11 says, uh, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So not everyone, now we're going to go back to Luke 15. Not every Christian, this is sad, but not every Christian is going to make it into heaven, even by the grace of God. And all it takes, Christians, all it takes, you're a child of God. You've already surrendered to God in the waters of baptism. All it takes, if it's necessary, is to repent. 
because there's joy over a repentant heart. Now, I want to look at verse 21, Luke 15. Look at the demonstration of this, uh, this joy in the heart of heaven. Right? It's the heart of the Father, but in the heart of heaven, in heaven itself. Verse 21, And the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And in verse 18, he said the same thing. He said, I'm going to go back to my father, and this is exactly what I'm going to say. I'm going to rehearse this. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight. The next verse, verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Father, I've sinned. I, and, he's, and while he's trying to get those words out, right, while he's uttering these, these words this, to his father, his father interrupts him and says, Hey, my son's home. Everything's all right. That's the joy of repentance. In verse 7, the joy of repentance. The lost uh, sheep, the lost coin. Luke 15, verse 7. The Bible uh, says there, I tell you that in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's joy. There's so much joy in heaven. God smiles and God is happy when we repent because we just admit, God, I'm sorry I messed up. I repent of my sin. Please forgive me. And it's no problem. It's a beautiful, beautiful account, right, for Christians. That's why we should always rejoice and be so happy because we have a God, a Father who loves us so very much that as we're striving to do the very best that we can, when we recognize that we've sinned, we've fallen, we've struggled, we're struggling in our lives, in our walk, that God's willing and ready every moment to forgive us. All we have to do is say, I'm sorry. We just need to repent. We, we expect that of each other, don't we? We expect other, we teach our children, just, oh, you, okay, you hit your brother, okay, just say you're sorry, and, you know, like that makes everything all right. Well, it does. With God, it makes everything all right. You just have to repent when it's necessary. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, here's, here's what I really wanted to get to. And we have time. Good. The boy's in, with his, he's in the pig pen. And, and in the pig pen, we're gonna, I'm going to Zechariah. Let me just flip real quick. Um, he's in the pig pen and, and, well, you know, he, he comes to his senses and now he said, I'm gonna go back to my father, but you know, I can't just show up. I, you know, I gotta, I, you know, I need to tell my father something. You know, so, but I want to tell him something from the heart. And, and so my heart has been pricked, and I, I need to turn my life around, and I, I need to explain to my father where I've been and what I've done, and, and I'm just hoping that he'll at least take me back as one of his, uh, one of his servants. You know, at least a servant. A servant. Okay. But see, here's what you don't want. On Judgment Day, what you don't want to do is you do not want to have to defend yourself. On Judgment Day, you do not want to have to be the one to give an explanation to God for the things you've done wrong. And then God would say something like, you know, all you had to do is repent. 
You don't want to be the one to stand before God and say, and Father, the Father says, give an account of yourself. And you say, well, God, I, I, you know, I, I, this. You don't want to have to speak on Judgment Day. Let me show you how beautiful repentance in this life is and the reward that it brings to us in the next life on Judgment Day. It looks something like this. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments. Does it sound like the prodigal? Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Look, it's not that Satan wasn't correct. Yes, he's guilty. (laughs) Here's the scroll. But you don't want to have to defend yourself on Judgment Day. You want the Savior to defend you. You want the Savior to say, Satan be God. This one belongs to me. First John, please. Chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world world. Notice what Jesus is, an advocate. In other words, he is the one who's going to speak in our behalf. He's the one to say, yes, you're right, Satan. He's guilty. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb, his sins have been washed away. Take off the filthy garments and put the white robe on him. Brethren, repentance is so beautiful. Now, turn backwards, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and uh, verse Verse 5, he is not just our, our, our paraclete, if you will, um, our advocate. In verse 1, the Bible says he's our mediator. First Timothy 2 and verse 15. That's not where I wanted to go. I want to go to uh, verse 5. Uh, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is, he's that one. Turn to Romans 8 now in verse 34. He's the one who is our advocate. He's the one who will speak in our behalf to the Father. It's Christ Jesus. Verse 34, it says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who condemns. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Notice it doesn't say that Satan condemns. It's Christ who will condemn. We're reading the seven churches of Asia. It's Christ who condemns, not Satan not our brethren, not even ourselves. It's Christ who condemns. And Christ tells us a parable. And he says, if a man has sin in his life, first let's, let's cover this before our time runs up. If you're not a Christian, it's, it's simple. You, you hear God's word, you believe it, 
You, you make a repentance in your heart, godly sorrow. You confess the name of Jesus. You're baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you walk with Jesus until you leave the earth. And while walking with Jesus, you will find that you're going to make mistakes. We all do. And we're going to have to come to God in repentance. And it's very simple that Jesus Christ, our advocate, our mediator, is the one who will say, Well done, ye good and faithful servant. And we might say, as the parable in Matthew chapter 25, Lord, when do we see you sick or sorrowful or in jail? Or, you know, when do we see you struggling? When do we see all of this and help you? And he'll say, when you did it to the least of one of these brothers of mine. In other words, God is the one who justifies us. God is the one who condemns. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24. We have about two minutes left. Hebrews 7 and verse 24. The Bible says, But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we'll pick up, Lord willing, uh, at the, the close of this with some more of the beauty of God in the relationship that we have with our wonderful and awesome Father. So thank you for your time tonight. We appreciate it. We appreciate your attendance. And we, uh, we're thankful to God for his grace. Thank you.